Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and artistic director of Doc NYC. Last September, in our TIFF preview on episode 53, I told you about the film making its world premiere, Grace Jones, Bloodlight and Bammy. Director Sophie Fines filmed with singer, actress, and icon Grace Jones for nearly five years in multiple locations, from her childhood home in Jamaica to her life on the road in London, Paris, and New York. The performer out there takes the risk. And I always say to everyone, if the lights should go out, if the roof, the electricity, the sound fails, I can still perform and hold the audience in the dark without any, without any trimmings. Now the film is coming out in U.S. theaters, and I sat down with Sophie in New York. Her film subtitle, Bloodlight and Bammy, refers to the red light outside a recording studio, and Bammy is a Jamaican flatbread. They signify Grace's art and life. The observational scenes are interwoven with a concert performance staged specifically for the film before a live audience. Sophie explains. I really wanted to kind of make something happen that I felt maybe this is only possible on film, but to make something that was like almost a fantasy performance. This isn't a typical music documentary with archival footage and talking heads. It's more immersive and mysterious. On the trip to Jamaica that begins and ends the film, Grace reflects on her childhood experiences, including her abusive stepfather known as Mass P. During the years of filming, Grace wrote her memoirs called I'll Never Write My Memoirs and recorded her first album in 20 years titled Hurricane that has traces of autobiography. Sophie previously made two documentaries with the philosopher Slavoj Žižek called The Pervert's Guide to Cinema and The Pervert's Guide to Ideology that both showed at TIFF. She's also made films about dance and one on the artist Anselm Kiefer called Over Your Cities, Grass Will Grow. Sophie comes from an artistic family of six children. Her brothers Rafe and Joseph are actors. Magnus is a composer, and her sister Martha is a filmmaker. Their parents were also artists, 
Their father, Mark Fines, was a photographer, and their mother, Jennifer Lash, was a novelist who died of breast cancer at age 55 in 1993. Her final novel, Blood Ties, was published posthumously. I asked Sophie what she learned from her parents about being an artist. Yeah, I certainly grew up in a household where there were lots of books. My father was a photographer, um, and I used to go to, in the darkroom and print pictures with him and, you know, do the washing and spend ages helping him there, and I loved that. And my mother also took photographs. She was a writer when, in my first 10 years, she was writing, and then she became a painter as well. So I grew up in a household which really kind of look, was excited by ideas as much as by... Um, by art. It was also a lot about ideas. And my mother, I think, would have maybe even been a psychoanalyst. I mean, she was certified incurably insane um, <laughs> three times, so she was very proud of. Um, and then uh, by the, the final um, reckoning, she was told, you know, actually by a brilliant, of course, Austrian shrink, you know, you're not mad at all. In fact, why don't you become a psychoanalyst? Um, so, <laughs> I guess know, that's the career path. Yes, exactly. So, so um that was something. Ideas were a big part of of, of the of, of the household, and you know, I definitely um, arguments around the dinner table. You know, um, yeah. That my mother had six children in seven years, so the fact she managed to write and publish five books at the same time, five novels, was kind of already kind of astonishing. Do you have a different appreciation for that now that your mom? Um, I do. I mean, I, a lot of my childhood comes back to me as you know, in the process of being a mother. And one of the things that really influenced my mother in her parenting was um, A.S. Neal, who started the Summerhill School, hmm. um, where this this idea was that children should have freedom without license. That they, that, but freedom as such was a kind of inherent human position that you should try to assume and uh, assume so for, your, for yourself itself? and others. Well, a lot of debate. I see. That was the whole point of the Summerhill model, was that the children and the teachers made the rules and they would workshop what the issues were of people's behaviour. So it wasn't like there was a, a set of rules that were kind of imposed from on high and everyone had to sort of fit within them. Those rules were constantly up for re, being renegotiated and st the, st the school still goes on. So that was a big... that. A.S. Neal's ideas, progressive education, had a big impact on my mother, and for a time she homeschooled us. Um, but I actually went to 11 schools, so I got a huge range of experience in schools. Because you were moving around. Because we were moving, and not because I was expelled. You know, I was a very <laughs> conscientious student, I hasten to add. <laughs> but you got out of formal education kind of early. I did, yeah. I knew that I wanted to. I knew I wanted to make films from quite an early age because um, I have a very vivid memory of babysitting and seeing a film on the TV that fascinated me because it sat outside of the kind of gripping yarns that my dad and my brothers would watch that were kind of basically like, you know, the eagle has landed or uh -huh. you know these kinds of German war films or you know, and and it was Herzog's The Enigma of Caspar Hauser on probably BBC Two or maybe Channel 4. So, you know, I remember watching that and seeing a, um, a kind of uh, um, a sensibility and uh, of imagery and sound and moment oh. that kind of, like, fascinated me. And I knew then I wanted to make films. But, of course, I, as I was going home after the babysitting, I did think, but, you know, as a girl, how do you do that? I bet it's difficult if you're a girl. Interesting. That was already... That was I had a conscious, conscious thought about that, yeah. 
And your sister also wound up directing films. Was that like any? Was there ever discussion about filmmaking between the two of you? Well, there was. She said to me, "You can't go to film school because I'm going to film school. <laughs> <laughs> you can't copy me." <laughs> so I said, "Okay, I'll work my way up. I'll sweep the floors." <laughs> so I became a runner, and I never went to any formal education in terms of. I mean, I did a foundation course when I was seventeen at Chelsea Art School, and I knew I wanted to make films and not be a painter. And, you know, she's, she was studying film at, at Harrow. And actually, I loved listening to what she was learning about when she was studying film. And um, She's just a couple of years older than you? Yeah, she's three years older yeah. than me. So, yeah, strangely enough, we, we both, enter, you know, make film. Uh, she makes making fiction. I'm making documentary. And did you make a conscious choice to start making documentaries? Well, I definitely, I can have, I do have some kind of moments of realizing that I loved something in the tonality of documentary film. I remember watching Titicut Follies on mm. TV. I remember watching Charles Atlas's Hail the New Puritan. I remember watching The Belovi, um, Kosakovsky's film, um, you know, and being and feeling that this was a really interesting um, space in filmmaking that wasn't as constructed mm. as a fiction. It didn't feel as theatrical, um, but it had a sort of quiet drama that sort of seeped out of the edges of the scenes that was kind of layered, you know, that, that the tones of things were more subtle. Sophie's first feature-length documentary is called Hoover Street Revival, set around a church in south-central Los Angeles. captivating figure in the film is the preacher, Noel Jones. Something has to die for something else to live. You gotta die out to the parties when your babies are born. Amen. You, 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 uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. you can't dance all night now. You got to dance your way to the house now. Amen. Cause mama ain't gonna keep that child all the time. Now you better come home now. Uh, where are you? Uh, come on home, the baby's crying for you. Baby ain't crying for me, baby crying for you. Baby won't see mama. Amen. So what brought you into his church in the first place? Just a love of gospel music. Huh. You know, and I was at the time, you know, my boyfriend was from Los Angeles and we were just in LA driving and on the freeway tuning into different radio stations and suddenly hit a gospel channel and you know, I said, "You know what? I would love to go to a great black church, you know, because I always, you know, I mean, music has been such an extraordinary part of what's defined 20th century American culture, black American music. And gospel is kind of at the heart of that, at the roots of that in, in very often. So I just heard this and I thought, yeah, let's, you know. And he, being from Los Angeles, knew someone who recommended this church. Uh-huh. So we went on that just purely as kind of, you know, gospel tourists, really. Um, and then came away going... But the preacher is kind of astonishing. Didn't know, of course, didn't know at all that he was Grace Jones' brother. (laughs) How long did it take before you figured that out? Well, he came to London, and my boyfriend contacted me and said, yeah, guess what? Pastor Noel Jones is in London. So I was... 
with a couple of friends and I said, you know, hey, let's go to, do you, you, you're going to be amazed by this preacher. He's he's extraordinary. This is before I mean, you had filmed him. Before I'd filmed yeah. him, yeah. So uh, we were just there in Brixton, very strong Caribbean community there. And, you know, we stood out because we were the only white people there. And he came towards us as he was about to go onto the pulpit. And he kind of said, do, do you know, do you want, to, we'll get you seats. And he was very gracious. And then afterwards, you know, he, we chatted and he said, oh, you know, my little sister is Grace Jones. And I thought it was a joke. <laughs> I thought he was making a, and he, obviously my face, you know, reflected that. And then he said, no, no, seriously, you know. And so then that was when I first learned about it. But it wasn't part of that community's world, you know. The, the world of the church in L.A. was about a whole lot of other things. It wasn't about the fact that he was Grace Jones' brother. If anything, you know, Grace, in all her wonderful Dionysic forces, would, of course, be very, you know, be a, looking like a backslider, mm-hmm. a Jezebel, mm-hmm. to a lot of churched-up people. So how long did it take you to make Hoover Street Revival? Or how much time were you spending in the church to, to catch that? Well, once I decided that I, I'd made this film before that, a, a film about, um, with a, choreographer Michael Clark in, in London and I said so that was a sort of 40 minute piece and then I decided okay I really want to make a film about that church and I decided to shoot it all in the year 2000 and shoot from Christmas to Easter and be kind of look just in one kind of cycle of a year to just structure it that way and I was very interested in the performance of church I mean all my films have this performative aspect that kind of creeps in and I it's something that's I don't quite know why or where mm. but I looked at his church sermons as a form as a performative form as a something that connected culture to oral traditions of speech um, so even if he's got to even if he wants to take the congregation through complex ideas at the end he's got to deliver this kind of Holy Ghost Pentecostal moment so that form kind of you know, intrigued me because it has a very particular arc. It builds in a certain way. It crescendos in a certain way. And he's got to shape his ideas within that form. And the people, and I was, then I was fascinated by how what he said affected people's lives, like the tension between what can be said in church to what people experience in their lives, you know, in the truth of the disappointments, the loss, the tragedies that unpack, and um, also the fragility of of people's lives, particularly in that community, of course. So what were the circumstances that let you meet Grace Jones and embark on a film about her? Well, when I'd finished this film, she happened to be in London and came to the very first screening of it. So, uh, you know, that was really exciting. We were all thrilled particularly my dad, who thought she was extremely sexy. <laughs> Very excited that she was there. Um, and so so that was just a, a, a really, um, you know, just co- completely by chance. And then um, when the film ended, she stood up at the end, and I always remember this, because it was such a great way to respond to a piece of film, to, to experience of a film, she said, she stood up clapping and she said, I love the smell of your film. <laughs> you know, it was this kind of sense that a film could have a smell. You know, could I feel have... like only Grace Jones can get away with saying something like that. <laughs> if, if one of us said that, it just wouldn't go over <laughs> the same way. Yeah, no, she, the delivery is, 
is key, for, but unique to her. But so then I had a very um, intense conversation with her, hearing about what church meant to her, hmm. and she said, "You understand where I'm from, you know." And she said, "I'm church burnt to a cinder, to a crisp," and you know she. She's away with language. She's away with language. And so um, we just kind of hit it off. Uh, and I also described to her some of the, you know, my experience of being there. And I felt, I think she was also kind of touched that what he was doing, what her brother was doing was, you know, she felt it was interesting and yeah. that I had recognized that. Um, I think that um, she liked that. Because I have to think that over the years, there must be lots of filmmakers who must have pitched Grace Jones an idea of doing a film about her. Yeah, I mean, for sure, that was actually how I, because um, I looked back into my kind of a journal that I keep of just more like an ideas kind of journal and just noting things down. That, And I realized people asking me the dates of when did this film start with Grace. And so I looked back and I realized that 18 months after I'd met her, she contacted me and she said, you know, some a, another TV station has approached me and, you know, I just don't want to do what they want to do. It's just not me. I just, mm. why don't we do something together? So, you know, I was, I said, well, yeah, that sounds... <laughs> that's an offer you don't That's an refuse. offer, you know, you don't refuse. And, 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 and I was also willing, and which I think, you know, was part of the trust that built up between us just to keep filming and to not bring in third parties, so investors. So you filmed over... How many years? I filmed over just under five years. Okay. But I was making other films. I had more yeah. of a baby. I mean, it was just very much like a kind of just a rolling, you know, kind of shooting that she would call me and say, I'm going to Moscow. You, you know, do you want to come? Or I'm going to Japan. I'm going to Tokyo to do. These were corporate gigs. So we, my flight and all of those costs were on the rider of those corporate. Uh -huh. Yeah. So we had this kind of these this kind of funding that came through uh, the process of her corporate performances that enabled me to travel with her. And then she very, you know, critical to the film was that there was a Jones family reunion in Jamaica. And she said, why don't you come to Jamaica? And we, st we went to Jamaica for three weeks and travel around the island. And, you know, I think... Is that the trip we see at the beginning yeah. of the film and at yeah. the end of the film? It's all, yeah. Everything we see in Jamaica is on that one... That one kind of, yeah, yeah that one holiday, that one road trip around the island and also at that stage she was wanting to kind of interrogate her her roots in Jamaica and particularly her childhood there with her parents and trying to understand it and come to terms with it really because of this very kind of violent experience this kind of abusive experience that that, that she and her siblings um, had there as children with left with the stepfather um, because the parents went to America and, you know, were setting up their church there. But mm. it's a very common Caribbean experience for parents to go off to, you know, have make a living elsewhere. And the children are left in Jamaica with grandparents. So it sounds like it's an organic process. And I remember about six years ago, you telling me you had shot so much footage with Grace that you thought this could be an eight-hour movie, maybe even longer. And so I'm wondering, you know, how you found the final structure that uh, that you wound up with. Yes. Um, you know, when you've shot over that long period of time, um, the idea of, you know, 
trying to think about how to compress it uh, from a distance, you know, is just, you know, very hard to, to, to figure out. And certainly if you take one um, scene with Grace that might happen in real time, it's pretty riveting for that <clears throat> 40 minutes anyway. So, that, you know, there, there was so much beauty in the durational potential of that. And it could still happen, you know. It might still happen as a kind of art project, yeah. a kind of immersive four-day, you know, uh, film. That, There's an audience for it. That you could come in and out <laughs> and sort of... Uh, so, but for, for, the, for me, I just got to a point where I felt like I, I couldn't really make another film until I'd completed this film with Grace. And she'd always said to me, you know, during the filming and after, you know, I'm not in any hurry, Sophie, mm-hmm. I'm not in any hurry. So I took that to think, well, maybe she's not ready. Mm. So I didn't want to impose or push anything on her that she wasn't quite ready for. Because, of course, you know, she'd never shown herself like this. Well, this right. So you're doing something very different than than what she'd done before. She's been in different forms of media for several decades, always either controlling her image or or having someone else constructing Constructing her image, yes. Yes, and I realized when I overheard her talking to Paul Morley, when he said, why why are you doing this filming with Sophie? And I didn't realize until I heard her say it to Paul that, that actually she felt like it was a challenge to her because she wanted to, she saw it as a point of maturity for her in her life that she could show this private part of herself to 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 be seen you know in a kind of like in almost in an existential sense to allow that witness of her to happen and to not be you know hiding behind uh, these beautiful aesthetic constructions which are her but there's another part of her that she's always kept private and not what where what she's controlled is that side of her being seen and certainly being documented. So, you know, I thought that that was a, that challenge that she set herself was at the core of it. And within that, for me as the documentarian, um, what was brilliant was the fact that she, within that decision, had decided never to control me, never to sort of try to make sure that I was getting it right or this or she never interfered in the film we see how formidable grace can be when she's angry we watch her pacing a hotel's presidential suite reaming out someone over the phone well darling i am the one doing the show michael don't give me this shit all the other rooms are taken care of call me when it's done sorry I asked Sophie if the wrath of Grace was intimidating. Well, what I what I learned about with watching Grace was that she lets loose when people haven't listened to her, because she's so kind of fascinating, and when she, her, her use of language is so performative and rich and sort of almost disarming. Often people actually aren't listening to what she's actually saying. So very often. You know, so I really made the sort of note to self, listen to what she is actually getting at. And if you listen to what she's actually saying, 
and follow through and and collaborate with her on that that furious side of her doesn't that doesn't necessarily you know erupt i mean i've had disagreements with grace and i've certainly enjoyed learning how to really argue back and give as good as i get <laughs> to the point be- where she even commented on it and i said <laughs> i said yeah grace you know i mean what what are you going to do if you're on the other side of the tennis court and serena williams is firing aces at you you know you can't just stand there you've got to be able to fi- fire them back can you give me an example of something that you sparred over well it was it was actually funnily enough the investment of the bbc because I think based on the Russell Harty experience, she was very worried. You know, Grace is really anti-corporate. Mm. So she just was worried that, that the, it's even like the BBC is even the British. Is, is Russell Harty the... Uh, the talk show she, host who, who, that she famously okay. slapped live on TV. Although if you watch the whole thing, you see that he's incredibly misogynistic and patronizing to her across the whole of the interview. So many years after that took place, the BBC still has... Uh, well, she certainly said to me, I've spent 30 years refusing to make film, make a film with the BBC. So I said to her, listen, Grace, I promise you, this is BBC Films. The commissioner there is like you or I. And she wants to make the same film we want to make. And please, you know, you've got to come and meet them and you will see that they're not the corporation. <laughs> you know, they're not corporate. It's not a corporate sensibility that we're working with at all. And I had to really argue that with her because there would just been an unfortunate thing with a press release that went out uh-huh. where someone had said that they were they were um, uh, commissioning this film. Oh. And she was like, they're not commissioning this film. We commissioned this film between us. Right. You know, so it was a sort of language thing that. Right. So uh, I take it over the years that you'd filmed her performing a lot, but ultimately you set up a performance in Dublin in uh, fall 2016, which is the one we see in the film. Yeah, I mean, you know, the digital camera is fantastic for this intimacy and mobility, but her performance is, you know, big and beautiful and it really required not only to be shot well, but staged for the camera. I mean, not only not least because of the legacy of her image-making history with Jean-Paul Goude and the one-man show. And, you know, it felt like I really had to push out with Katie Holly, the producer, and Jim Wilson in the UK to get in finance on board that could enable us to create a layer in the film that was really carrying this kind of thrill of her performance and to capture it. Amazing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that says, So is it, was that show performed other places? or No, is, no, no. It's like only, the kind of staging that yeah, we see in the, that is the really... The staging that you see in the film is, is unique to the film. And it was, you know, something that I um, created for the film in a sense to realize a theatrical 
performance for Grace that I know she really loves theatre, you know. Mm. So if you're touring in, in music festivals, you can't create a staging where the, 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 where the, 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 the set is going to fly up and, and change and these kinds of changes that you can create in a theatrical staging. I really wanted to kind of make something happen that I felt maybe this is only possible on film, but to make something that was like almost a fantasy performance her fantasy of her performance as something that would never happen outside mm. of the film and taking a lot of what I'd learned and by listening to her about what she felt about light mm. and interpreting that and bringing that into how we completely staged and created this out of nothing. Was it one night or a couple nights? Two nights, yeah. two nights. Of course, the band is fantastic. She's been touring with the band, so her relationship with the band mm. is really, was, was, was very, is very much there. Plus, she had been... Dis- working towards a performance, uh, staging a performance with Eiko Ishioka, the costume designer. So when I said to Grace, what, what set? You know, what, what's the set? She said, well, actually, Eiko came up with an idea, a concept of a staging, but maybe we could do, maybe we could do that. So she pulled out of, we spent about sort of three hours rifling through kind of boxes in her apartment and found the, you know, the holy grail of this folder with, you know, four or five images that had been roughed up by, by oh, Aiko. Wow. And then she said, what about this? And I was like, yeah, this is really fantastically clever. This is a brilliant concept. Grace appears especially vulnerable in a meeting with Jean-Paul Goud, who was her lover, longtime image maker, and the father of her son. I, I always still say you're the only man made me buckle at my knees. Me? Buckle at your knees? Buckle. Doing what? Well, just doing nothing. Coming up to see you and uh, Mamma Mia. <laughs> but that has nothing when to I do with to fear. When I climb those stairs at... Um, <laughs> Union Square? Yeah. The knees would get weaker as it went up. That's, it's, that's a very strange sensation. But it had nothing to do with fear. Mm-mm-mm. Well, I don't know. I, I haven't really... I don't think it had to do with fear. It just had to do with the, 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 the force and, and, and the, um, the intensity of, of the feeling. I asked Sophie to describe that meeting. Yeah, I mean, to me it felt like, you know, it, it touched on... What I love about documentary and the relationship between documentary and fiction, because that meeting almost is like something from a Godard film, you know, lovers, some kind of discussion with lovers about their love affair and what they feel in this kind of bounce of a conversation between two ex-lovers, where you still feel, I mean, certainly from Grace, her, you know, her, her kind of love for him she's very clear about and then you see how he as a man is kind of embarrassed by that feigned surprise well you wouldn't with me you know and um so yes it's it's vulnerable because grace is putting her her feeling out there i mean it's it's could you have expected that when you walked into that situation well I'm not really present in my films, I, particularly when I'm making observational films. I, I just love to see what happens and try to just completely capture it. But I am in the room, and I did actually, I did actually, when Grace was getting ready for the interview, I did sneak a little chat with Jean-Paul, and I said, because he said, what am I going to ask Grace? I will do this interview for V magazine. What am I going to I said, well, can you, can you ask her about her relationship to authority and, um, and Mass P? <laughs> so I, I seeded 
that because I I was really uh, yeah I felt I knew from what I'd shot that the step grandfather was a huge part of Grace's what form what had formed uh, her in yeah. many ways. But I but you know I, I that was just to, to kind of throw something in, particularly because he was wondering what to ask. Yeah, yeah. So uh, my last question. Uh, uh, what was the experience of showing the film for the first time with Grace in Toronto? Well, like? you know, Tom, this is where I'm just so grateful to you and to Toronto because that first world premiere screening of the film in that beautiful theatre that was like an old vaudeville theatre that almost mirrored the theatre that where these performance sequences are shot and to sit amongst the audience, one and a half thousand people, Something like that. and just to feel their attention to every like beat in the film and just to feel it unpacking in the sort of psyches of all of these people and the the thrill ride of that that I had felt in 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 creating it to see it you know unpack for the audience in that way was just you know it was just just really fantastic you know I could not have hoped for a better birth of that film than than that screening in Toronto well it was a special night for me what what I remember is Grace not wanting to sit through the film and deciding that she was going to run out during the film and change which I just thought oh my gosh we're never going to get her back here on time I I knew we would get her you see this is where people sometimes don't listen to Grace because they think oh my god she's not going to return it's like no She's going to go back to the hotel because she, and this is this is the kind of quality of the performer in her, which is the basis of most actors' crafts, that what you wear determines, uh, to some extent, how you're going to be. So I think she, she had a dress on and she had, you know, for the red carpet yeah. and doing all of this. But when she did the Q&A, she wanted to be in a different outfit that was more like a, a more masculine, a more neutral, a different a different performance, the Q&A to the red carpet. So she quite rightly needed to change because, you know, as a woman, if you're in a dress talking, you know, you're not maybe able to get to places mm. in a conversation, where, whereas if you're neutralizing that sort of red carpet version of yourself. So I think it reflects that. Well, I'm so pleased that we got to do that. And thank you for taking the time. Not at all. Thank you. It's great to to be here. I want to thank Sophie Fines again. Her film, Grace Jones, Bloodlight and Bammy, is now playing in theaters. This interview was recorded at the School of Visual Arts Social Documentary Program. If you're in New York City, look out for our Stranger Than Fiction series. Each Tuesday, we show a documentary, followed by a conversation with the filmmaker at the IFC Center. The spring season runs through June 5th. Visit the Pure Nonfiction website for details. Thanks to our team. Series producer, Sarah Modo. Sound mixer, Tom Micah. And web designer, Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Raphael Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at THOM Powers. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at Pure 
nonfiction.net.